We looked at, or we began to look at Hebrews chapter 10, and I'm going to review for just a moment because the writer of Hebrews in this chapter, he's really wanting us to understand that uh, the law was a shadow of the good things to come. He, he would have been fine if he would have said the good thing to come. He's speaking of a new covenant, but we know who instituted that new covenant. It was Jesus Christ. He begins to talk about in verse 4, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. That's his aim. That wasn't pleasing to the Lord. He kind of held his nose until he sent his son down to redeem us. That's why when Jesus touched down, he says, sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, but a body you had prepared for me. Behold, I've come in a volume of the book to do your will. And so he, he begins to tell us again that every day the priest would stand in the temples making sacrifices, doing all of these things. But once again, they weren't pleasing to the Lord. Jesus comes. And, and what he's doing, and I've said this before, he's showing the potency of the blood of Messiah Jesus no matter what sin you've ever committed, no matter, matter how many times you've committed a sin, when you give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, he wipes the slate clean. He separates our sins as far as the east is from the west, never to bring them up again. That's what I believe the Holy Spirit is trying to make sure these Jewish believers know and understand. So no need of going back to the temple, no need of going back to the sacrifices and all those things. And then we left off and we will pick up in verse 26. And that's the reason I believe he wanted them to know no matter what you've done, the blood of Jesus Christ will cleanse you and set you free. He will welcome you into his family, Jesus will, never to bring a sin up again. Verse 26 says, for, and I, I want to say this because I was so pleased with it. We usually come up here and pray before service starts. And one of Jonathan's daughter, Elena, prayed today. And she said, Lord, let your word humble us. Let your word humble us. Coming from a, a young girl. And that pleased me so much because this is what this passage is speaking of today. Not to, for us to be afraid to warn us, but to humble us and let us understand that uh, we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. No works of our own could have ever allowed us to enter into the kingdom of God. And that's why I feel like the writer changes gear here. He says in verse 26, for if we sin willfully, let me get where I'm supposed to be here. 
Let me preface this also, because these verses can be, you can leave here thinking that you've sinned and made the ultimate sin of how many, many times you've sinned, God is not going to forgive you. And the writer of Hebrews squashes that claim. And he's wanting us to understand the real meaning of these verses. That being said, I think I've shared with you guys many of times that we have to take Scripture in its settings, in its context, to really apply it to our lives. But you can take some parts of Scripture, it will always mean the same, especially when it talks about the nature of our God. For instance, things that you can take out of context when it speaks of God is his attributes are always the same. He's always love. No matter if he's judging, whatever he's doing, that's his nature, regardless of the context. So anything relating to talking about God and his attributes in nature is always going to be the truth. They're not going to change. So as we come to these verses and we begin to see that, these verses cannot, should not, be taken out of place. The author is concerned, his chief concern is the defection of the faith. The writer of Hebrews in this passage is concerned with leaving the faith. That's why in my Bible, in bold letters of this passage, it speaks of the just shall live by faith. That's over all, all of the passages I'm reading today. And so he starts off in verse 26, for if we sin willfully, deliberately, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. What remains then? But a certain fearful expectation of judgment and a fiery indignation that's coming down the pike. He goes on to say, which will devour the adversaries. That's as good as it's ever going to get. And so we might as well, if we do that, pack up, go home, and wait for the judgment, I suppose. But I'm here to tell you something. This passage has caused many a people angst when they read this, who try to understand this apart from its context. You cannot. I get asked a lot from uh, verses all the time from these two verses, and I try to tell people you cannot take these two verses we're going to look at and apply that and say, well, I'm going to say you can't be dogmatic about it. You have to take these two verses with the context, and that's what we're going to do this morning to be able to understand these verses. And, you know, people don't want to go through the process of reading the entire book of Hebrews. They don't want to do that. They say, I just want to know what these two verses mean. But once again, they are tied by the context. And without their context, it's all doom. 
Because you know, when you read these verses alone, I don't believe these verses are talking about a backslider. I believe they're talking about an apostate, somebody who has turned their back and left the faith. And I'll show you why. Then I'll volley it back to you. You have your own opinions on it. But we have to decide, is an apostate someone who was saved, who turned their back and left the faith, or somebody who really wasn't saved? Then you can develop your own position on that. But the writer seems to be saying that after you have been saved, if you willfully, and that's if is a third-class condition, maybe yes, maybe you will, maybe you won't. The ESV says deliberately. That's, their, that's what they're trying to say. If you deliberately sin, you might as well hang it up and die. The judgment is coming. And I've seen folks in the church suffer the loss of a job, loss of income, go through a divorce, lose a child, lose a parent, lose a spouse, suffer some illness, be betrayed by a loved one or another. And I've seen some of those folks just turn away and go back to the world, drown their sorrow in a bar, or go back to an addiction. And I've seen some more, more than that, remarkable heroic Christians who have laid hold of Christ and have refused to let go and move through some of the most difficult circumstances in life. There's also a challenge to these Hebrews, Hebrew believers in particular, and to us certainly as we look at this. And I'll explain that here in just a moment. Why that's not the correct understanding, I believe. But let me just say right here that when we talk about deliberate sins, the Bible also refers to them as transgressions. A deliberate, willful sin is the same thing as transgression. To transgress, I've said it many a time, means to violate a known boundary. In other words, I knew it was wrong, and I did it anyway. I knew what I was doing when I sinned against God, but I did it anyway. That's called a transgression. It's like when you tell your little baby, I remember when Anthony and Erica was little kids, and we said, don't touch that. And they look at you and smile, and they do it anyway. That's what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. That's a transgression. We read here in verse 26, for if we sin willfully, commit a transgression, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, they've been born again. The light has been revealed to them. The writer says, there's no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. What else are you going to sacrifice? Jesus has paid the price. And you can see why people who just read these verses alone 
without understanding the context, why they come away just absolutely horrified and thinking that they are dead. And again, this passage has haunted many people who have read it and tried to understand it. But you know, if you just stop for a moment and think, and even frankly, read through some of the great accounts of the Bible, you will find there are actually many characters who committed transgressions and then walked later after a time of repentance in the grace and the goodness of God, walked in the blessings of the Lord, many. So that's the first thing that begins to tell us. Now, maybe that's not the right interpretation, but you know, then we have God's own testimony, and we know that he cannot lie. You guys remember Moses when he was up on Mount Sinai, and the Lord had just told Moses that he had found favor with the Lord. So Moses was kind of happy, stuck on himself, broad-chested, and then he asked them, Lord, I want to see your face. God tells him, you can't. No one can see my face and live. But, Mo, I'll tell you what I will do. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will pass by, and I will allow you to see the trailing edge of my glory as I pass by. Moses, that's as good as it's going to get for you for now. In fact, alone, your face will light up like a light bulb shielding him from the very glory of God Almighty. The Bible says, as God passed by, he declared himself to Moses. You remember what he declared? It's recorded for us in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. I can imagine when Yahweh comes by, he says, Yahweh, Yahweh, God. Nobody else is God but the Godhead. And then he says, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness. That's the God I know and truth. Keeping mercy for thousands. And here we go. Forgiving iniquity. That's the crookedness in man. He, he doesn't miss anything when he speaks to us. And transgressions, there it is, and sin. Once again, what is transgression? Violating a known boundary. Does God forgive? It says, yeah. We're not saying this so that you have a license to go out and sin. I'm simply making a statement that is true. That tells us that a superficial interpretation of Hebrews 10, 26, and 27 cannot be right. That's why we must read it in its full context, because God has declared it otherwise. He says, I forgive transgressions. So the writer of Hebrews is obviously saying something else. This is where context comes in. As we ask ourselves the question, what is he saying then? If he's not saying one transgression... After you get saved and you're dead, what is he saying? Well, we see 
when we get to verse 29. But for now, let's look at verse 26 and 27. He says in 26, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a, but a certain fearful, that's the first judgment, expressed in terms of man's fear, a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation. That's God's provision, which will devour the adversaries. So he juxtaposes God's punishment against the punishment of the law. He says in verse 28, anyone who has rejected Moses' laws dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. For such a man, there was no mercy in the old covenant for that. All he could hope for was death. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose Will he be thought worthy? And then he gives us three things. Number one, who has trampled the Son of God underfoot. Two, accounted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing. And three, insulted the Spirit of grace. Those are some nasty things he does. Three things that the writer of Hebrews says that such a person does. And so how do they do these things? How do you do those three things? Do you do it by falling into sin? Do you do it by making a mistake? Do you do it by getting angry at somebody and saying things that are horrible and hurtful? Those are sins. But that's not what the writer is speaking of. Do you do it by backsliding? for a period of time in your life and falling back into your old lifestyle before you come back to the Lord. No, that's not how you do those things, these three things. You know how we know? We know that sin, the kind of stuff we do on a regular basis, we know that stuff is covered. We know it from the word of God. That's what we live by because the Apostle Paul told us in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate. Hmm, I'm going to tell myself a little bit. I've had a few judges in my life for my advocate. Some have been okay, and some <laughs> I could have defended myself better. The writer of Hebrews is saying Jesus is our defense attorney with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. We probably don't use that word propitiation in everyday life on a regular basis, but it's a word that means takes away wrath. Jesus Christ is the only one who has removed the wrath of God on our behalf. How did he do it? By burying it. He bore the wrath of God on our behalf. Jesus bore our wrath. It wasn't his. 
It wasn't directed at him. It was directed at us. He stood in the path of it, though, and he bore it. He consumed it. So you see, this passage tells us that we're going to mess up. But when we do, God has made provisions. There's, a, there's this thing in effect. It's the death of Jesus Christ that keeps on cleansing us from sin. So you see, it's not by sin and the things that we do every day, the mess-ups. That's not how we trample underfoot the Son of God. So how in the world do you do those things? I mean, you look at them again, verse 29, the latter part, it says, trample the Son of God underfoot. That's pretty heavy there. And then he says in verse 20, 29, the latter part, counteth the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. How do you do that? It's not just by your daily mess-ups. We know that. If that's covered in the blood of Jesus, how do you do this? That's the theme of Hebrews. The writer, what he's doing, he's addressing this letter to people who have embraced the gospel of Jesus, but were beginning to turn away. They were going back to the law. You can go back to many of things, but don't ever go back to the law. They were going back depending on the law instead of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's how you do those things. You do it by once experiencing those things, the forgiveness that Jesus Christ, and then knowingly and deliberately rejecting the sacrifice, literally coming to a place of saying, I don't believe Jesus died on the cross for anyone. I don't believe it. I reject it. I reject the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's how you do it having once embraced him, but now you're rejecting him. In other words, just turning from faith to unbelief. So you see, again, this isn't just a picture of sin. We've all done that. We have a great tendency to do it. And when we will continue to mess up, we will continue to mess up and fall until the Lord takes us home. The author of Hebrews is here talking about a determined decision on the part of a person who once embraced, here it is again, who once embraced the gospel to now reject the death of Jesus and to try to be acceptable to God by some other means. That's what he's speaking of, like the law. That's what these people were doing. We're going to go back to the law and have that be the way that we become acceptable to God. It doesn't work like that. You do that, and you're going to trample underfoot the Son of God. You're going to profane the blood of the covenant. So in verse 30, he goes on and he writes, if you look with me in your Bible in verse 38, it says, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine. And vengeance 
That's really an unfortunate translation we have right there. That, that conveys the idea that my father is vindictive. I can't find that anywhere in Scripture. It's not there in the Greek either. It is the full meeting out of justice to all parties. That's what it means. This verse must be taken in its full context. This is, a, this is a pretty good translation. It says, I will repay, says the Lord, and again, the Lord will judge his people. For we know the one who said, here it is, the meeting out of full justice belongs to me. Not to me when I'm mad at someone and want to pay someone back. <laughs> I will either put too much wrath or not enough. When God meets out his wrath, he does it perfectly. And then he says in verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, why is he saying this to believers? That's our question. Because we've just read last Sunday from verse 1 to verse 23, he's reminding them of the fact that if you reject the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, there's no other option but to stand in judgment before God for your sins. The good news is Jesus took the punishment for us. But if you reject his sacrifice, there's nothing left but to pay the price of your own sins for yourself. You gotta, you've got to know what that is. What is the price though? The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And we're not talking about only physical death. Spiritual death is being separated from God forever. Even when we were unbelievers living in this world, we would catch a pretty day, plenty of them. Good things would happen to us, plenty of those things. So even though we didn't know him, we had what you call common grace lavished on us. But an unbeliever, when they leave this planet and not knowing Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, he's cut off from common grace, his grace, any grace. That's terrible. You call that hell. So he's saying here, by these two verses, 30 and 31, God wasn't just blowing smoke. When he said, I'm going to judge, there is a judgment coming. There is a judgment coming upon the world, and God will judge sin. He says this in John 16, verse 8, and when he has come, Jesus touching down, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. He has to be the judge. But for those of us who are in Christ, that judgment is past. The judgment is over. Jesus has been judged for us on the cross. This is a good place to say amen. I'm glad about that. That's good news. But judgment is coming to those outside outside of Christ. Now, this point in this letter, he begins to recall some of the junk 
that they've been experiencing related to persecution and difficulty because of their faith in Jesus. You know, as I was getting the scripture together, we're beginning, America is beginning to identify with this. Our government is subtle, subtly becoming more at odds with true Christianity, calling us bigots, calling us racist for standing up for the word of God. He says to them, think back in verse 32, but recall the former, the earlier days in which after you were illuminated, you had been born again. You endured a great, great struggle with sufferings. He's wanting them to call to mind, to recall their former sufferings as believers. But it's surprising how most people's memories needed prodding. Satan would have us think that our former days without Jesus Christ was truly better days. I never forget, I heard this pastor say, uh, before he was born again, he'd drink, he'd drink, go home and throw up. And the next morning, as he was throwing up, he would say, I'm never going to do this again. And the next morning, he'd get up and say, I'm ready to go back at it. <laughs> it reminds me of Numbers chapter 11. He says, we remember the children of Israel said, the fish which we ate freely. Did they eat it freely? I don't think so. In Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic, they mentioned, they, they, they never mentioned once the taskmaster's whip that was on their backs, that was on their backs probably every day. They kind of forgot about that. But now they say our whole being is dried up, full despair. There is nothing at all except this manna. You can almost hear their disdain. They said, this manna, I'm tired of it. God has been feeding us manna since we've hit the wilderness, and we're tired of this manna. I'm tired of men's study. I'm tired of women's study. I'm tired of midweek study. I'm tired of PV Sunday sermons. Hmm. That's manna, y'all. <laughs> Numbers 21.5 says, for there is no food. This is their complaint. For there is no food and no water, and our souls loathes this worthless manna. They're speaking of Jesus. That's, that's who depicts this man. They say, we're, we're tired of this worthless manna. Verse 33 says, partly while you were made spectacle, that word spectacle in the Greek means the off-scouring of the world. I, I, I told you before, my dad, we had a hog farm and in the fall, we would begin to slaughter hogs, and they would have those big black cauldron pots and just putting everything you could put in, in there, letting it cook. And then you see that black smut just pile up. That's what the off-scouring is. 
Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 4, 9. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last as men condemned to death. For we have been made both to angels and to men spectacles. The Greek word is theatron. We get the word theater from. A place in which games or, or movies are shown. A spectacle exhibit for the world, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. Verse 34, for you had compassion on me in my chains. That almost makes me believe that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter. That's who I think he wrote it. For you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plunderings of your good You know, when people were put into Roman prisons, particularly, the Romans felt no compunction to take care of anyone, like feed them or clothe them. You're in prison because you violated the law of the empire. So if you was fortunate enough to have a friend of someone to bring you food, because that's the only way you would eat, or clothing, that's the only way you would have clothes on. Think of that person coming to the Roman prison, knowing or saying that you have violated Roman law. They had to be insulted and treated miserably too. But they came. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. It's these other believers who risked their own freedom to go to those people and say, I'm here to bring food to so-and-so. I'm here to bring clothes to so-and-so. Paul says, for you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Do we care more about the now or the then. That's what it boils down to. We have to, if you're struggling with that, we have to understand that the then is going to last forever. That might help you out a little bit. Do you push all your chips in to the now? I got a, my first cousin Grew up with him like a brother to me. And we just found out he has bone cancer. I brought him to church with me. We grew up together, went on vacations together. We both went the same way for a minute. And God was merciful to me that I never got hooked on drugs and things like that. He was merciful to me, but my cousin, he got hooked. A great basketball player. He went to the University of Miami to play basketball, stayed down there for one year. That's where he began to do his drugs, come back home, straight down the, down the hill and been like that 60 years of age. Finds out he has bone cancer yesterday. Since I've known the Lord, I've told him, hey, you need the Lord. You need the Lord. 
I'm not going to play with that man, Al. That's what he calls me, Al. I'm not going to play with that man. He's seen what the Lord has did for me in my life since I've given my life to him. I've tried to, I've talked to him several times. So I finally went to where he was staying in one of those boarding houses for a couple of days. And I said, he comes out sitting in a chair, barely can move. He said, man, you've got sandals on. It's cold out here. It's pretty warm yesterday. And I said, no, it's all right. I said, come out here. I want to talk to you. And I said, because he had given all his papers to mama, and we read them. And I said, I said, you've got, you've got bone cancer. He said, yeah, no, no, it's something like that. I said, man, that's not good. I said, you're, I said, I'm going to die. And we've seen our kin folks and other people around us that's dead and gone. I said, we're all going to leave here, but you need to know Jesus Christ. And he just started crying, and I started crying. Nowhere to live. We gave him $10 to stay in that house for that night. My family Where is he going to live? Where is he going to live? Where is he going to live? Heard the gospel. We went to church together many of times. But I think God has given him grace. And I said, I'll I'll be here to see you, and I'm going to do for you and do what I need to do. Sin is terrible. If not, Barnhouse was right. If not for the grace of God, so go I. The place he was living in, my sister's nice homes, my mama can't even sleep at night. She's been worrying me to death. We got to do something for him. We got to do something for him. And at first, I was thinking, I've told him time and time again, I'll take you to church. I'll do this. I've told him. But, and I knew when I saw him, I would break down. So loving my mama, knowing that she was worried, we get in the truck and we go see him. A shack, they call a boarding room. And I call him, girl comes to the door. I say, is he here? And he, he comes out. And I start talking to him about the Lord. And first, I told him, man, you got cancer because he had left all his paperwork over mama because he has a house, because he has nowhere to stay. He stayed in the hospital for 15 days. And he says, I don't have anywhere to stay. And so I go see him, and he said, Al, I don't want to die. I said, I know. I said, but we're all going to die. I said, you need to know Jesus Christ. I said, he's the only one, no matter what you've done, that will, he can separate your sins as far as the east is for the west and never bring them up again. I said, you need him. And I said, I'm going to be here for you. So he'll probably stay with us. But uh, uh, 
That's what it's all about. You see, you can talk a good game. I've got two sisters that makes good money. Big homes. And the friend that he was staying with, because when you walk in, you just walk in and it's a bed to the left. He's sleeping on the bed. My cousin is sitting in the chair. And then it's an eating place. And the guy who's on drugs, who doesn't have a penny, let's say, hey, I'll let you stay with me. That's not right for believers. That's not right. And then all these scriptures started running through my heart and through my mind. And I'm saying, we got to do something. We got to do something. So be praying for that. We're going to do something. We're going to do the right thing. But that's what he's saying here. Paul's saying in verse 34, for you had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. That's what it's about. Therefore, because they're, they're thinking about turning, therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. We're going to get a great reward for following the Lord down here. Can you imagine? Because you're, you're a believer. God will not be a debtor to anyone. He says, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession. Thank you. Thank you. For yourselves in heaven. Because you knew that you had a better possession, one that could never be taken away. That's what I like about it. Verse 35, therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. We can come in to the way of holiness through Jesus Christ, the holiest place of all that Christ has made for us, and that through his own flesh, his own sacrifice, he died once and for all. He's trying to get these Hebrews to understand. No more bulls and goats that you had to do on Yom Kippur, and then you had to do every time you sin. No, none of that. Behold, I've come in the volume of the book to do your will, O Lord. So now you can draw near if you're a believer. He says, with the full heart of assurance. Bulls and goats couldn't do that. I told him, if you give your life to the Lord, he'll separate your sins as far as east of, is from the west and never look at you like, I didn't want to do it. No, he wouldn't do that. He's never been ashamed of me. And I've given him good reasons to be. He's never. Parents. We've got little, little, little babies in here. Let us take hold of that hope. Don't bend under pressure of this world. And let us consider one another constantly to build one another up in regards to the faith and good works. Not neglecting, Paul said, the assembling of ourselves together as some do. Verse 36 for you have need of endurance. That's what he says. He's getting to the end of this chapter, and he says, you, all of us, we don't know what's coming down the pipe. 
We don't know what's on us right now, but the Holy Spirit says you have need of endurance. I love that word. I've told you many of times, I love that word endurance. I don't like having to use it, but I love the word. The Greek word is hupomone. That's what it, and it means a patient, enduring, sustaining perseverance. Not only does it mean that God adds a little bit more to it, you're persevering, you're under pressure, but you got a frown on your face. No, hupomone means you're going through all these things and you're full of joy as you go through them. That's, that's what's tough. I love the description here. The bus is supposed to arrive at 9 a.m. I get there at 8.40, so I'm early, and it's a beautiful day. All of a sudden at 9.10, the clouds begin to appear. It's 9.30 now, and it begins to drizzle on me. Me thinking it was going to be a beautiful day didn't bring an umbrella. 9.45, now it's pouring down rain. 10 a.m., here comes the bus. But it passes me and splashes mud all on me. 10.30, here's the bus. It comes. I get in the bus and I say, how's your day? I hope you're having a good morning. That's hoopamony. That's supernatural. That's what God expects out of us. No matter how much it rains on us, that shows that we are peculiar people because nobody does that under fire, under trial. But we can do that, the believer can, because of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us. He says, so that after you have done the will of God, you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise, the same promise he made to Abraham, that promise. And then he says, for yet a little while, if there was any concern about the delay of the second advent, you can rest assured that just in a very little while, it will be here. I want you to understand these words that follow were adapted from the author of the Septuagint of Isaiah and Habakkuk. He says, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. I ain't going to lie to you. In some ways, I'm, I'm hoping he's putting that last hardy plank on my home up in heaven. And then in some ways, I hope he stumbles and it drops and gives me another 20 more years to put it up there. <laughs> but he's coming. And then he says in verse 38, now the just shall live by faith. He started off talking about the tabernacle and how it was a, a parable to us. It was speaking to us about this is not good enough. This is not going to get the job done. The killing of bulls and goats, there's still a stitch to me. I'm pleased that you're doing it. That's what we have to do, but it's, but it's not pleasing. 
And then Jesus says, behold, I come in the volume of the book to do your will, O God. Now the price is here and it's been paid for. And you're still thinking about going somewhere else. That's why he says, if you willfully turn away, there's nothing left for you. You're apostate. You're denouncing the Christian faith. God's favor does not rest. He seeks those. He seeks us. He called me. He called you. No telling how long he wooed you, but he wooed you. And I love what Habakkuk chapter 3, 17 through 19 says, because this is really what he's saying. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, bam, 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 nothing good coming. Though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, <laughs> yet, yet, I will rejoice in Yahweh. I will joy in the God of my salvation. His bottom line is he's got salvation. That should be every believer's bottom line. Not what we have here, but what we have when we leave here. Because believe me, we're going to leave here. That's what he's saying. Doesn't matter. And if it matters to me now, let me just keep praying. Let me just keep hanging out with the Lord. And then sooner or later, he'll change my heart. He says, I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. Amen. He will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me walk on my high heels. Latter part of 38, he gives a warning here because they deserve a warning because he's warning them to stick with Jesus, stick with Jesus, stick with Jesus, no matter what, no matter how many clouds appear, no matter how much it rains on you, no matter how much the mud splashes on you, stick with Jesus, stick with Jesus. That's what the writer is saying. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. There's no longer any other sacrifice. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, amen, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Listen, as I'm waiting day after day, and there's sometimes, maybe there's no evidence around me of God's love, of God's blessings, of God's provision. We have to remember, the just shall live by faith. And let, let me straighten it out because I don't want to get it twisted or, or want you to think otherwise. He's not talking, he's not speaking of faith, the name it and claim it faith of, I want a Mercedes Benz and I'm praying to God for that or I want a million dollars in my bank account and I'm seeking the Lord for that. It's not even positive thinking. And he, the Holy Spirit lets us know by Habakkuk. Habakkuk says this, this is faith right here. Don't get it twisted. Though the fig tree doesn't blossom, though there's no calf in the stall, though the vineyard doesn't 
produce. That's the faith that God is extolling here. That's the faith he's extolling. When everything is turned upside down, what are you going to do? When everything seems to be going wrong, we have to have that anchor that goes behind the veil and can sit there. We know that God loves me. He's in control. He's working everything out. That's the faith he extols. It's the faith that says, yet I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. That's why he came. The worship team can come up. That's why he came. He didn't come to give me my pie in the sky when I die and all that. thing. He didn't come to give me a, 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 a great reward down here. That's, that's good and well. But I, Victor Summerhour, gave his life to the Lord because of his salvation. I got past that a long time ago that, Lord, if you give me this, I'll serve you. If you give me this, I'm serving you because I told you guys about early in my Christian walk when we went to Bereans bookstore way up off of uh, Candler Road, I think, in Atlanta. I'll never forget. I know God had that signpost for me. And I was looking for, show you how long this was, a K. Arthur book. I cut my teeth on K. Arthur. I love K. Arthur. And these two girls were, oh, yeah, Creflo said this and Creflo said that and, and money this and money that. And I was so fired up about the Lord. I said, hey, you don't give your life to the Lord for those things. I could have got slapped. I could have got anything could have happened to me. But Lydia, I think Lydia came and pulled me away. <laughs> but it's your salvation, you guys. We're not going to be here forever. There's an afterlife. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? That's what he's saying here. Though none of those things ever come upon me, I've got the cake. The cake is Jesus Christ. And I've told you, even on my little cake, it's so much frosting on it, grace, that I almost say sometimes, Lord, that's enough. But I, haven't, but I won't say it. I won't say it. That's enough. I mean, he blesses me time and time again. A knucklehead like me. He blesses me. But it's because I gave my life to him, I'm going to ride with him because I know absent from the body is present with the Lord. That's what I'm banking on. I've told you guys, if I have to live in a cardboard box all my life under a bridge, to Go for it. This does not matter to me down here. It's about Jesus Christ. It's about Jesus Christ. And it should be for you. That's why he came. That's why he came. Let's pray. Father, I'm so glad. I'm so glad that you don't take back what you promised me when I blow it, when I have a bad day, or when I have bad days. That's why you've been speaking of in chapter 10 and 11 about the potency of the blood of Jesus Christ. A matter of fact, chapter 10 says that your blood sanctifies us. It sanctifies us. We're already there 
cleanses us, continually cleanses us from sin. That's why if they turn back, there's no other sacrifice you can do. There's no other sacrifice. Lord, I pray for any unbeliever that might be here or watching online, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would bring them to repentance. Once again, it's not your will that anyone should perish, but all come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Jesus, you said, my father is working and I always, and I will always work to bring people to you. Lord, may we understand the great price that you paid for us. Therefore, we live holy lives because of what you did. I'm not speaking of a license to sin, no. It's because of the love of Jesus Christ that we follow you, that we should keep your commandments. You've got everything else, Lord. I pray for those that are hurting, those that are sick, those that are shut in, Lord, that you would work your way. Your will be done, Father. I pray for those that are here and those that are online, Lord, that your word will penetrate hearts, that they will understand the great price that you paid, that they would understand, oops, I slipped up, repent, ask for forgiveness, and continue to walk. And my God will never bring up sin to you. He's cheering us on. The Holy Spirit is inside of us, cheering us on to see Jesus one day face to face and hear him say, well done, you good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. So I pray that every believer here and every believer online would walk in confidence because the blood of Jesus Christ is potent, eternally potent, to cleanse us from all sin. Thank you, Lord. And we ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Let's stand and close with a song, please.